was awakened in the middle of the night and a young boy was talking to me. And he was telling me about growing up in Burlingame, California and how he had no brothers or sisters and his mom was very religious. She kept saying, have faith, everything's going to be okay and blah, blah. And I, it was so real to me that I had to get up, go into my office and start typing. And, and I was the, the, the ideas and the images and the scenes were coming to me so fast that I have two computer screens. And on my other computer screen, I was just, I was just typing as fast as I can. Next scene, next scene, next scene, next scene, next scene, next scene. And I wrote that book in five weeks. And I honestly do not believe that I wrote that book as much as I transcribed that book. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Today, we are focusing on the staying power of stories. Robert Tugoni, a writer that Book Reporter says is an author who seems like he hasn't met a genre he can't conquer. He's the author, in addition to our guest, of the powerfully and memorable The World Play Chess that we're going to talk about, but we're also going to talk about many other things in his genre-spanning career. <laughs> I am Ron Block. And I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. Robert is also the author of a book that we see recommended in the friends and fiction groups almost more than any other title, The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hell. It's a prime example of storytelling we all love and characters we can't wait to share with other readers. One review of Sam Hell says Dugoni has produced a novel that if it doesn't cross entirely over into John Irving territory, certainly nestles in close to the border. We just had to bring him on to talk about this fabulous book. Right on, right on. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. We have a lot to talk about. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. And and it really is. It is the book that I see more recommended among members on our Friends in Fiction, which is 60,000 plus members, wow. um, more than any other. So I just, I knew we had to have you on. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. It's, it's fabulous. It's, uh, I get, I, I get some of the most heartfelt emails I've ever received on the extraordinary life of Sam Hell and and now more recently the world played chess so it thrills me that people are finding it and enjoying it it's wonderful and yeah the world played chess is another triumph we're going to talk about that in just a second but first let me tell everybody a little bit about um about Robert he's the New York Times Wall Street Journal Washington Post and number 1 Amazon best selling author of the Tracy Crosswhite police series set in Seattle which has sold more than Eight. Yes, I said eight million books worldwide. He's also the author of the Charles Jenkins espionage series, the David Sloan legal thriller series, and several standalone novels, in addition to the two that we're going to talk about mainly today. His accomplishments and accolades are many, and I urge you to go to his website, robertdugoni.com, and read all about it. Just wait until you hear what he's also been doing during the quarantine. 
<laughs> oh. <laughs> that's a good that's a good teaser there, Ron. Like, like that? that. <laughs> yeah, I do. Well, Robert, let's start out by talking about your fabulous latest release, The World Played Chess. Can you give us just a little bit of an overview of the book and tell us where that amazing title came from? Sure. The the title actually is pretty funny, but the story is basically a, a coming of age story of three young men. There's Vincent Bianco when he's 18 years old, gets a job on a construction crew with two young men who are Vietnam veterans. And the story is also told through the perspective of Vincent as a father with his own 18-year-old son. So there's three different timelines. Really, the story centers around Vincent and his job the summer after his high school senior year uh, on this construction crew with two Vietnam vets. And one of the vets, William, starts to suffer from PTSD, which no one knew about back then. He just starts to sort of go off the rails. 40 years later, uh, Vincent is raising his own son, Bo, and he gets a package in the mail. And in the mail is a journal of William's year-long experience in Vietnam, which explains more deeply what happened to him that summer that he worked with Vincent. And Vincent uses it as an experience to help him raise his own son going through a difficult time during his senior year in high school. So the title, uh, The World Played Chess, I was invited to visit a friend of mine down in Palm Springs during the winter a couple years ago. And he asked me uh, wh- what I was working on. And I told him and he said, oh, it's sort of like that old adage, The World Played Chess. And I said, I don't know that adage. Yeah, and he said, you know, that. the world played chess while I played checkers. <sighs> and I said, oh, my God. That's exactly what it's like. Who who said that? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> so I looked it up and it's it's not attributed. So when I wrote the first draft and I sent it in, I put the quote. At, so explaining the title on an interior page. The world played chess while I played checkers. And I attributed it to my buddy, Dale Walker. There you go. <laughs> and, and my, my editor called me up and said, who the hell is Dale Walker? And I said, he's my buddy. And she's like, well, you can't attribute it to him. I said, well, it's not attributed to anybody else. And he's the one who said it to me. And she's like, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> I love it. I, love it. I, 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 I told Dale he, he got accolades in the, in the acknowledgments, but I, I couldn't put him on the, on the quote. <laughs> so has anybody come forward and claimed writing that? No, I yeah. I still don't know exactly where it came from. If you look, there's a couple of things, but mostly it just says it's uh it's anonymous. It's 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 not attributed. But boy, is it fit. You know, oh. I mean, and all of us I think have that experience, you know, have you ever had that where you're, you know, you think you're doing something and you realize you're not even playing the same game. Right. You know, I played my wife in chess one night, Jim. We were uh, we were sitting around and I didn't want to sit around, so I said, "Let's go down and get a beer at the local bar down the street, little little uh brew pub and they had they had games there and she said well let's play chess and i haven't played chess in years i haven't played chess in years and so i'm playing her and i'm thinking i'm just killing her i'm thinking i'm winning and all of a sudden she moves one of her pieces and goes checkmate i was like what i don't even know what what game you're playing (laughs) i just heard the word somewhere so one of the things i really want to know is where the original idea came from taking on a vietnam story is not only brave but it's a heavy topic but boy you did it the storytelling is so vivid and powerful and it really feels authentic so give us the backstory well you know vietnam is the war that nobody wants to talk about and nobody wanted to talk about it I always had a fascination with the Vietnam War. I I can't tell you exactly why, Ron, but 
you know, I have a 1981 first edition of Mark Baker's book called Nom. And why do I have it? I, I, I didn't, I bought it back in 1981. And so there was a, there was something there about the Vietnam war that just fascinated me. And of course, then later on, I, I, you know, I'd watch Platoon or Full Metal Jacket or uh, uh, Deer Hunter or some of the other myriad of, of movies that finally got made. And I, I, I suddenly, st- I mean, I just remembered that summer. I remember the summer I worked with two Vietnam veterans and, and you know, what they went through and, and what happened. But still, when when I was I was at my desk and my my editor, Danielle Marshall at Lake Union, she had said to me after Sam Hell came out, I'll see you in three years, meaning it takes about three years to, uh, you know, write a literary novel. And uh, we were coming up on about three years. And, and, you know, these are always the kind of books I really wanted to write. These are the books I grew up reading. My, I was a I was a shit when I was in grammar school. I got in trouble. I was the kid that couldn't <laughs> keep my mouth shut. And, you know, and so the teachers said to my mom that I was bored. So my mom kept handing me these books. I didn't know what I was reading. I just knew I was reading these great stories. The Count of Monte Cristo, The Old Man in the Sea, The Great Gatsby, you know, Of Mice and Men. And, and so, you know, as my life went on, I always thought these are the books I'd write. So anyway, I wrote The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hell. It did very well. Uh, they asked me, you know, you got another one? And, you know, I... I, I hemmed and I hawed and I had this idea and that idea. And then I started thinking about that summer. And I think all of us have epiphanies in our lives. They have those moments in our lives when we say, wow, my life changed. My life changed on that instant. Uh, my life changed when I became a father. You know, that was that was a pivotal moment and an epiphany in my life and, and in my wife's life. My life changed when I got married. My life changed that senior year that I worked on that construction crew. I went from a an incredibly naive kid to someone who started to realize that the world was not always a bright and beautiful place. And some people had gone through really, really difficult times. Right. I like to tell my kids, you won the lottery. I won the lottery. Being born in the United States, you win the lottery. We just got back from Egypt and they saw firsthand what it was like to not win the lottery. So, uh, I, I didn't wasn't really thinking too much about a Vietnam um, uh, journal, and I wrote the first draft of the novel, and I really it was really a story of Vincent, eighteen years old, Vincent as a father, Vincent raising Bo, and I I um, I took some experiences of my son's senior year in high school, and then some experiences he had, yeah, uh, the summer after senior year when he lost a good friend of his. And I morphed those into the story and I wanted to be sure my son was okay with it. I wanted to be sure that I, you know, my son was all right with what I was writing. And so I asked him to read it and he came down, uh, he was living at home at the time and he came down and he said, um, you know, dad, I, I really like the book. Uh, I think the book's really great, but I don't know what happened in Vietnam. I don't know anything about Vietnam. Nobody <laughs> teaches us about Vietnam. No, you know, I, no, I've never even heard about it. I just know it's a war that was fought in the jungles over there. He actually visited Vietnam and he thought it was one of the, to this day, he says it's the greatest country he's ever been to. He, it's the best time he's ever been. I've heard so, that. So he was like, what happened? And I thought it was very poignant of him because um, I thought that there would be a lot of people because nobody talks about Vietnam that that didn't understand it. And 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 I didn't want to write a story about something so poignant 
that I knew nothing about. You know, I had some idea, but um, I think honestly, I was probably a little fearful, you know, about writing about a subject matter that people could come to me and say, well, what the hell are you writing about? You don't, what do you know about it? Right. So, you know, I just, I did what I always do and what I really love to do. I'm a research nerd. I mean, I am a nerd. I, I, I just, I love to dig in and I just started digging in and I, I know when to stop when stories start to repeat themselves. So after about 15 firsthand accounts, because I'm I'm OCD, so if, if three books are good, 15 must be better. Uh, <laughs> so after, you know, reading as, as many firsthand accounts as I could and then, you know, watching the movies again and and watching Ken Burns documentary and, and other documentaries about the, the background behind it, I felt pretty comfortable putting together a journal which we writers know is the, is the biggest mistake you can make is to feel comfortable. Um, so what I did was I called up a couple of friends of mine. One of them, one of them is a writing friend of mine who's um, 80 years old, 81 now, Bob Mangan in Spokane, Washington. Great guy. He served in Vietnam. He was a, a sergeant. And I said, would you help me? And he said, absolutely, sure. And in fact, I got another guy that'll help you. Well, you know, this is when I really started to learn a lot about guys don't want to talk about Vietnam because he would put me in touch with guys who he spoke with and they'd say, yeah, I'll talk to him. And then I would get in contact with them and they wouldn't respond. Uh, they wouldn't talk to me. Um, but Bob would and uh, his friend would at least read the Vietnam sections to make sure I got it right. With all the little details, uh, such as you never fired a full clip. Right. You always took at least one bullet out because otherwise the M16 would jam. Uh, you didn't wear underwear in the bush, because if you did, you got uh, crotch rot. You know, you always, when you stopped, you took off your shoes and your socks to let your feet air out, because otherwise you'd get foot rot. You know, all the, all the details that really, I think, make a story come to life, that make scenes come to life, um, I owe a great gratitude to, uh, to Bob. What a great honor to those vets that did help you, though. And it's great. And it's nice to know that uh, they put their stamp of approval on it. This episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast is brought to you in part by bestselling author Vanessa Riley, whose latest novel, Island Queen, is on sale now for a limited time for just $2.99 ebook. Island Queen is a remarkable, sweeping historical novel based on the incredible true story of Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, a free black woman who rose from slavery to become one of the wealthiest and most powerful landowners in the colonial West Indies. The New York Times calls Island Queen riveting and transformative, evocative and immersive, by turns vibrant and bold and wise. Longtime friends and fiction viewers may recall Vanessa was a guest on the Wednesday Night Live show on July 21st, 2021. Watch her interview on the Friends and Fiction YouTube channel or listen to it here on the podcast. Meanwhile, grab your copy of Island Queen by Vanessa Riley. It's available now wherever books are sold. I'm so interested in the feedback that you have gotten about this book because you're right. We don't read a lot about Vietnam. And I do agree. I mean, when you said that about your son, I thought, I agree. I mean, I have this kind of vague notion of what Vietnam was, mostly from, you know, having an uncle that went and a father who um, 
broke his ankle three days before he was supposed to go and ended up and, you know, him saying all the time, oh my gosh, what are the chances that that happened? You know? Um, so, I mean, I know about it a little bit, but, um, but I, I don't know as much about it as I probably should. And I'm just wondering if you've heard from vets who are, you know, grateful that you finally, you know, maybe told their story or people who weren't as thrilled that you told the story, like what's the feedback been for you? Um, I've heard from many vets and I've gotten a lot of emails. And if you look on the Amazon reviews or if you look on the Goodreads reviews, not only will you find veterans, but you'll find people who say, my spouse went to Vietnam and never would talk about it. Now I know what happened. I had three friends in my town who went to Vietnam and never came home. My best friend was there. My brother went to Vietnam. You know, my cousin went to Vietnam and I never knew what happened to him. And Probably the, 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 one of the nicest things was I got reviewed by the Vietnam Veterans Association who said words to the effect that this is the, the, uh, this is the most accurate firsthand account that they had read. And, you know, again, I, I owe that to the, to the people whose, whose uh, stories I read, the stories I remembered from the two guys that I worked with. And then from the guys who actually served there. Um, so the, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I was concerned that this, the, a segment of women readers who are the largest segment of readers out there, middle-aged women. And you know, this is speaking strictly from a, uh, a professional standpoint. I was concerned that they wouldn't pick the book up and wouldn't give the book a chance. And, you know, let's all face it. We're trying to sell books here. This is what we do for a living. We write books to sell yeah, them. Sure. Now I'll have to admit that this is a book that I wrote for reasons well beyond making money. Uh, same with Sam Hell, but that, that is part of the business. And, you know, luckily the book clubs are starting to find it and I'm starting, I, I've, I've already done like eight book clubs this month, just in January. And I have, you know, I'm, I have book clubs lined up, you know, for the next three, four months down the road, people that are finding this book and it, and it's mostly women. And they will say some things like, you know, I was a little reticent about picking up this story, but once I started to read it, I realized it wasn't a war book. It was, a, it was a coming of age book. And it was, a, a, a you know, this, this young man's coming of age came of age in Vietnam. And what a horrific thing we did to that young man. What a, what a, you know, what a horrible thing we did to our, our young boys, our, our sons. And I don't mean to leave out women. I know there were quite a few women who spent time in Vietnam, either as nurses and things like that. We just didn't have the same, they, they weren't fighting uh, like they are now. The other thing that was really interesting was the story came out right about the same time that we had the big gaffe, if you want to call it that of pulling out troops from Afghanistan. And that wasn't anything that we timed. It just so happened to be that it happened. And the Taliban came back and took over. And so I was interviewed by a military magazine and they asked me, they said, do you relate the experience of these young men in Vietnam to the experience in Afghanistan? And I had to be very careful because I certainly didn't want to offend uh, anyone that served in Afghanistan because I feel like, Anybody who serves our country is a hero, flat out, you know, every single man and woman that put on that uniform to defend our country, to defend our more, whatever, they're heroes. And I didn't want to offend them. And I said, I said, to the extent that we lost a lot of very good lives and now people are wondering, was it worth it? I see some similarities. 
That was a very good way to answer. That really uh, that's oh that's a hard question. I mean, I, you know, wow, that's a hard question. But that yeah. must be really gratifying to just see that response. And I love that the story came from this really authentic place inside of you. It wasn't just, you know, pure historical fiction for the sake of research. It was like right. a true story of your own, which I love. Yeah, th- those two Vietnam vets I worked with, and, and I actually worked with one of them over the course of several summers and and student spring breaks and things like that, because I, I needed to raise money to, to put myself through college. So I, I, I spent quite a bit of time with him and I, and I heard a lot of his stories. But, you know, they helped me grow up. They, they've basically forced me to grow up. You know, there's a line in the stories where I say they expected me to act like an, uh, act like an adult because, you know, when they were 18, they had to be adults. I couldn't be the, the shithead who shows up at work with a hangover and can't pound a nail. And, you know, I, I couldn't do that. I, I had, I had to grow up and, and, you know, they, they taught me a tremendous amount about taking responsibility for your actions. Wow. And I have to say that I was a teenager right at the same time you set the book out in 1979. It was kind of like that was my summer too. So I could really relate. And then I thought about all the other people that I know that could absolutely relate to that. But it was like a convergence of the three stories. Can you talk about how you constructed the book and put those three things in? Because the the diary was was just a brilliant move. And I know Christy's done this in her latest book. And it's just such a great tool to tell another angle of a story. So how did it all come together? Well, you know, Christy, I don't know about you, but I'm an organic writer. Uh, I'm not an outliner. Uh, not at all. I, me neither. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I find that I write a 30 page outline and, and I'm off the outline on the second chapter. <laughs> you do. I used to try to turn one in to my editor and then it was like, this is a waste of everyone's time. Let's just Yeah, I just on. I just wasted 3 months putting together an outline that I'm not even going to use. And oh by the way, I thought of a different killer, you know. I mean, it's like <laughs> okay, this isn't going to work. So, uh, it's a, I do it organically. And in this particular instance, I was thinking about Sam Hell and how Sam Hell was structured and what made Sam Hell successful. And Sam Hell was structured in a way where the main character Sam is an adult. And then he goes back in time and he tells you the story about his life. Then he's an adult. So you get one chapter where he's an adult and it, all of the, the chapters in when he's an adult have a relationship to when he was a child and what he was going through in this particular instance, you know, because of my son's brilliance of, you know, I'd, I'd like to know what happened. And I decided to put together this, this journal. I knew I had to start from a perspective of the, Jerry leaving home and Jerry returning home. William, in other words, leaving home and returning home. And then what happens in between? And then I had to find a way to fit fit it in so it worked. And what I found that the, the best way to do it was to open the chapters with the journal because it would give the reader a an idea of what was coming. So for instance, William's first sexual experience in, in Vietnam at a, at a boom, boom house. And then you come back to Vincent at 18 years of age up on the roof of, of a construction crew. And he sees these two beautiful young ladies, you know, in their bikinis swimming and you know, what's, you know, what's coming, you know, what's likely going to happen. Uh, he's naive, he's, he's unsophisticated and you know, it's not going to be a positive experience. What was, what was difficult was writing the difficult scenes, was writing the difficult journals. And there are some very difficult scenes in, the, in that. But 
one of the things that my buddy Bob said to me was, he said, if you're going to do this, I want you to do it honestly. Because I had made a comment to him about, you know, oh, you know, my, my son and my daughter have both moved home. I feel bad for them. My son was living with his buddies. He's out of, he's out of college and he's having a great time. Now they got to come home and my, my daughter's losing her junior year in high school. And it had been about three months that we had this whole COVID pandemic. And Bob said to me, well, get some perspective because these young men went to Vietnam for 13 months and every single day they woke up wondering whether they were going to go to bed that night. And he said, think about what happened in World War II to the people that in Europe that were under Nazi rule for years and years and years. So, you know, there was a, a matter of perspective to it. And, and Bob just wanted me to be honest. He, he write it honestly, you know. And so some of those scenes are difficult, but they're also the most powerful scenes um, because of that, because it, it really does, I think, educate people to understand what these guys went through. Well, and on that note, I mean, I think one of the most, you know, powerful lines from the book is growing old is a privilege, not a right. So can you tell us, you know, sort of how that fits in with the story and maybe with life in general? Yeah. You know, when you're 18 years old, you think you're going to conquer the world. You know, you think no, nothing can kill you. You know, you, you, you do dumbass things and because you just think you're invulnerable, that nothing can hurt you. And, you know, what these guys, I remember them telling me uh, when we would take a break working and I'd be, I'd have a beer at the end of the day. I remember them telling me that, you know, they suddenly realized they were, they might not be here tomorrow because guys they were, they were serving with, they weren't there one day, one moment they were there and the next minute they were gone. And that was it. And they didn't have time to grieve. It was saddle up. Let's go move out. So, you know, my sister, who's a, who's a doctor, um, I was complaining to her one day and I was complaining that I had to get both my hips replaced and uh, I have this blood disorder. Uh, I had a stroke when I, in 2016, which I had to have a heart patch, you know, put in, I you know, the minor things in, 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 in all honesty to comparatively. And I, so I was complaining about it, you know, and my sister looked at or said to me, she said, well, she said, consider yourself lucky because the alternative is a lot worse, right? And the alternative is you, you, you don't have, you're not old enough to have th these ailments. You don't make it to that age. And it made me think of my good buddy, you know, Ed Vendetti, who died of a heart attack at 42, you know? And so she said, basically, it's a privilege to grow old, you know, because not everybody gets to do it. Yeah, that's, oh man, that's... Uh, wise words for sure. And, and it's funny. I wish we could have known that back when we were 18 and 19, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it would have changed a lot. I think if we valued things differently, but I guess that's part of growing up as you learn as you go. So, and, and I think Ron, you probably would agree with me because you probably see this the way I see it, which is hopefully my kids learn from my stupidity. So for instance, I told my kids flat out when they got to be 16, 17 years old. I don't care where you are. I don't care how much it costs. But if you've been drinking, don't ever get in a car. Yeah. I will pay for the cab. I will pay for the Uber. I will pay for the Lyft. I, I will I'll do whatever, I'll pay whatever it takes. <laughs> what, uh, and, and I'll do it without asking questions. Mm -hmm. Just come home. Yep. You know, and I never, my parents never said that to me. I always felt like I had to sneak 
And, and, you know, I, so I couldn't leave my car someplace and then take a cab because then they would know, and I couldn't afford a cab. And so hopefully generations learn by our stupidity that, you know, they, they become a little smarter. <laughs> I mean, my kids are much smarter than I am. You know? <laughs> they definitely are. I'm I will laughing. say my Only, poor mother yes. picked up more people in at just ungodly hours of the night. <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah, my parents always said that. They were like, we don't care. Just, you know, but um, I was, I was pretty well behaved, but not yeah, I, not I bet much. you were actually. You were I was. I, was pretty, I know you I were. Mean, you know. I have no doubt. I, 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 on the other hand, <laughs> was the thick, <laughs> my parents didn't give me that freedom to know that I could call them. So I was the one that would like hide a ladder out, out behind the house and I'd sneak in at three in the morning and climb up drunk on the garage roof and climb in my bedroom window. I hope mom's not listening, but, um, but like, but you're right. Cause I told my kids exactly the opposite. Call me anytime. We will get you. We will take care of you. And I just, I got to know what it's like to be your age. And there we go. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how we pull back and, and we can um, learn life lessons from what we did incorrectly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I want to switch it just a little bit because I heard you talk once and because and, uh, we want to get into talking about Sam Hell, but that you are, you let the characters kind of drive your stories. You want to talk about that just a little bit? Sure. You know, and I, Christy, you can probably relate to this. I, I, I'm sure when I first started in this business, if you will, I could write. I wrote, I wrote, I was a journalist. I wrote in, in college and I got out and I wrote for the LA times. And, uh, and there's a structure to writing news articles, right? There's a structure to write. And, and so you learn it. And when you're in college, you learn how to write an essay. And my biggest problem when I got out, my success took a while because I just thought, well, I can write this novel. And I didn't realize there was a structure to write in a novel. I had no idea. Uh, and then one day when I wasn't having any success, I was at the Pacific Northwest Writers Conference and these guys were all at a table and they were all talking about these books they were reading, reading on the process. And I was like, what are you reading? What are you talking about? Oh, we're reading this book, Christopher Vogler's book, The Writer's Journey. I'm, I'm reading Saul Stein's book on writing. I'm reading, you know, and, and I was like, huh? So I went and I got those books and I studied them and I learned the structure and so if you look at my first few books, in particular, the David Sloan books, they're, they're, they're structured. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, they got good reviews and everything, but boy, I, I'm, I, think that, I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I teach, I teach the craft of writing now. I have a, a, a three-day seminar that I do with Stephen James, and I teach students on, on writing. And I always tell them, you start with structure. You got to learn structure so it's innate. It becomes innate because only when it's innate can you then – allow your characters to come alive. And how did that come about? Well, uh, I was let go by my publisher um, way back in, you know, I don't know where, 2010, 2011, something like that. And I realized, you know, you, you can do a lot of things. You can bang your head against the wall. You can rail against your publisher for being so naive or brutal for letting you go. Or you can simply say, I wasn't good enough. I need to get better. I, I wasn't selling enough books. There's something missing there. I, I can do better. And so my agent was really wonderful in that regard. You know, she took me aside and she said, you're a great, you're a good writer. Things will work for you, et cetera, et cetera. She had faith in me. She stuck by me and I, I owe her a great deal of gratitude. But what I did, learned was I had time on my hands. And so I finally went back and started reading some other books that, that had been given to me. My niece, Amanda, had given me Stephen King's book on writing. 
And and she even inscribed the opening of it. It was in uh, Christmas 2004. And she wrote, Dear Uncle Bob, I hope someday you make millions of dollars like Stephen King. Love, Amanda. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. And so I started reading this book. And and in the book, King says he's going to tell us the the secret of great storytelling. And, you know, you can imagine how I felt, Christy. I was like, oh, my God, here it is. The secret of great storytelling. (laughs) And I'm reading and he says, the secret of great storytelling, how does an author sitting at her desk in North Carolina touch the heart and soul of a reader she's never met and never will, living in a town she'll never visit and never has and never will? How does that happen? And the answer was telepathy. (laughs) And I'm reading and I'm thinking, okay, what? What? (laughs) Telepathy. And I started to read more and, and King explained is you have to, you have to write characters that can transcend time and place. Mm-hmm. And they transcend time and place by having a reader that can um, empathize with them so that the reader puts him or herself in those character shoes and becomes the character. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a couple of months, a year, I don't even remember how long it was. And I'm at the Surrey Inter- International Writers Conference in Surrey, British Columbia. And I'm on a panel with Diana Gabaldon. Oh wow! And Diana Gabaldon, the Outlander series, and she sold you know more books than than you know probably I could ever even think of. Anyway, somebody, a, a young a man, at the end of our session, he raises his hand for a question and he says, "Diana, can you explain the magic?" And Diana never missed a beat. She knew exactly this question had been. She'd answered this question before, and she said. The magic of writing is she writes at night and she and her husband would go out to dinner and then they'd come home and he'd go off and do his thing, read or whatever. And she'd go in her office and she'd close the door and she'd light a candle and she'd wait until her characters felt comfortable to come into the room and talk to her. And I started thinking about what King said about telepathy and Diana Gavaldon calls it magic, but it's the same thing. It's, it's having those characters so real and so alive that they're breathing and they're telling you their story. Hmm. You are not, you are not dictating the story to them. They are telling you their story. If you watch the book, I think it's, I think it's called the man who saved Christmas or the man who invented Christmas It's about Charles Dickens when he wrote a Christmas Carol. And he, the whole story is about he's in this total funk because he's got to write this book in six weeks and he has no idea what he's going to write. And suddenly Scrooge is in his office and Scrooge starts talking to him. And he's based on a character that he knew in his life growing up in an orphanage. And suddenly these men on the street come in and say, why do we need, you know, don't we have uh, uh, sanitariums or whatever? All the famous lines that, you know, and, and it makes it look like, sound like, whether it's true or not, I don't know that it was these characters telling him their story, not him creating their story. And, you know, I started to piece all three of them together. King, you know, um, Diana Gabaldon, Charles Dickens, and they're all saying the same thing. So I thought, I'll give it a try. So I went into my office and I closed the door and I turned on classical music and I waited. And I waited a hell of a long time, let me tell you. (laughs) Because it did not happen overnight. And I don't remember how long it took, but at some point I was awakened in the middle of the night and a young boy was talking to me Mm. and he was telling me about growing up in Burlingame, California. 
and how he had no brothers or sisters. And his mom was very religious. She kept saying, have faith. Everything's going to be okay and blah, blah. And I, it was so real to me that I had to get up, go into my office and start typing. And, and I was the, the, the ideas and the images and the scenes were coming to me so fast that I have two computer screens. And on my other computer screen, I was just, I was just typing as fast as I can. Next scene, next scene, next scene, next scene, next scene, next scene. And I wrote that book in five weeks. And I honestly do not believe that I wrote that book as much as I transcribed that book. Mm-hmm. That Sam, Sam came in and told me his story. Now, a lot of other things happened in between. The book wasn't published for like six, seven years Okay. And it went through many iterations, which, you know, you know, yeah. our first draft, you know, mm. nobody sees those. God first help drafts. that first draft. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the story was a story that was told to me. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the first time that my story was so visceral that people were calling me saying, or emailing me saying, you know, I'm in tears. I, I'm going to football practice and I'm crying my eyes out because I'm listening to Sam Hell. Uh, you know, I, all these, uh, my, my brother was dying of cancer. And every night the family would gather around his bed and they would read him your story because it's a story of hope and faith. You know, it was just, it was, it was so touching to me that I realized I can, it couldn't possibly have been me. It had to be something else that, that was allowing those characters to, to speak to people on a level that was telepathically touching their hearts. Mm. Those are absolutely the greatest moments. Those, I don't have them. I feel like for whole books, but I, I get them. And that's always how I know what my next book is. And sometimes in the middle, I just, Oh, there's just, it's the greatest feeling it is. It's magic. I mean, it really is. Um, gosh, I wish we could talk to you all day. This has been so fun. And we have like a million other things we want to ask you, but, um, but we probably need to wrap it up and let you get back to your, let you get back to writing the next book. That's going to absolutely blow us away. Um, but before we do, could you tell us in addition to your website where people can find you online? Yeah. You know, the, the, the best places is, uh, Amazon slash Robert Dagoni slash books, www.robertdagonibooks.com. I'm on Facebook, uh, at Robert Dagoni. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I answer as many emails as I can. I can't always answer them all. It's just not possible, but I try to, I try to respond. I try to respond to my Facebook, my Twitter. I sit at night and I, you know, and I'll be watching TV and I'll be doing my, my social media stuff there. I feel it's important that if people are going to take the time to read my work and then email me on it, that I'm going to do my best to respond to them because I feel like I owe, I owe readers that, you know, as well, readers, readers are, can be kind enough to, to read your work and, and take the time to tell you how much it meant to them. I think the least that an author can do is acknowledge it. I agree. That's so cool. And what we've learned over the last two years, we probably knew it, but more deeply is that people really feel what they're reading and they really connect on deeper levels than I, I feel like they have in all my years. And, and and I can't tell you enough how much we're grateful to you for being here today, because I feel like we've gotten a, a deeper understanding of your work and, and the stories behind them. And mm-hmm. I actually cannot wait to see what comes next. So we will maybe do another podcast about what's coming for you. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I enjoyed being here very much. It's it's nice to talk to other writers and, and you know, to, just it, it, there, there's a level that, that I think we all can relate to. Yes. Absolutely. For sure. Yep. 
And thank you all for joining us today. We love recording these episodes and are so grateful to you for listening. Please share with a friend and don't forget to pre-order your copy of Christie's gorgeous forthcoming book, The Wedding Veil. Trust me, you're going to want to be the first in line to read that one. Thank you, Ron. Remember, you can always find all the books by every Friends and Fiction Writers Block podcast guest, past and present, in the friendsandfictionbookshop.org shop. All sales placed there help to fund Friends and Fiction, and a portion of each and every sale goes straight into the pockets of indie booksellers nationwide. Since its inception, bookshop.org has raised more than $16 million for indie bookstores. Shop small, shop local, from the convenience of your screen with bookshop.org, and tell them Friends and Fiction sent you. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.